This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 14th, 2020. We're joined by an American soldier who survived being blown up on a battlefield in Iraq 15 years ago. And she tells us a story of how having her leg amputated years later actually allowed her to move forward with her life. We hear from an artist and scholar whose latest project draws into sharp focus our addiction to consuming bad news through social media. All of this starts now. A service person spent 10 years in the military and uh, in Iraq got blowed up and in fact uh, suffered a rather debilitating injury, but it has a happy ending. And I thought we'd just maybe uh, delve on that story for a short spell. Uh, The story's title, I got blown up in Iraq. Years later, amputating my legs set me free. Elena Duffy is the person in question, the author of the piece, and has joined us on the Oakley Show this afternoon here in Toronto. Elena, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How about you? How are you faring these days? Uh, you know, I'm I'm actually not doing too poorly, even though uh, New York City is, is gradually opening up. So there's, it's the little things right now. <laughs> yeah. New York City's had its own issues and problems, So, uh, but what you've encountered and had to uh, kind of come through, obviously, uh, is something of greater significance. I want to pick up your story. I mean, you were injured seriously in Iraq, and uh, it was a leg injury that just couldn't be uh, mended properly to a point where you could continue on, I guess, with uh, that leg being operational. Tell us about it, how it came to be, and exactly what you endured for a while until uh, this climactic moment in your life. Uh, Sure. So basically what happened was uh, being in the wrong place at the wrong time in a (laughs) a couple of different locations and a couple of different on a couple of different occasions. The first incident was in maybe September or so of 2005, and we were in a very bad car accident on one of the major highways in Iraq, and it was in central, the central region, and several Iraqis were killed, multiple people were wounded, and we were in an up-armored truck and for those who don't know, which is most people really, uh, if you are in the rear seat, there is a place where you could put your rifle, the old school M16 rifles. Uh, it's like a place where you could put the buttstock and then it clips into the top. And it's this metal piece, it's welded in and no one uses it ever. And when we hit, the vehicle that was in front of us, uh, I was shoved forward and my boot lace got caught on this piece of metal and twisted my foot around. So, um, but there was no imaging equipment. So we called it a sprain and it turned out that I'd torn some pieces of soft tissue and chipped a piece out of the bone. 
And uh, about two weeks later, I was hit by an IED, which caused a severe brain injury and a hemorrhage, which also wasn't imaged at the time because this was 2005. And uh, I ended up having surgery on that two years later. But because of the combined injuries and then nerve damage and neuropathies and all of these other things, um, the pain just wouldn't go away. And I was constantly falling over and re-tearing and all of this. And it was, it was kind of a nightmare. And so when a surgeon finally said, you know what, there's only the only way to kind of nip all of it in the bud is to amputate. I, I made my decision pretty quickly um, for, for such a big decision. It, it took me about maybe a month to, to say, you know what, this is, this is worth it. And so 14 years after that first injury, I ended up amputating my lower right leg. And you know what? I couldn't be happier for it. Um, That's the surprising thing to me, Elena. Yeah. I mean, uh, you had very few qualms about it. As you just said, it took you about a month, but it was almost an instantaneous decision. So I'm guessing that the pain you were enduring, the discomfort and, well, let's say the disruption to your otherwise active life uh, made it uh, an easier decision, could we say? Oh, certainly. Yeah. You know, as soon as I, as soon as they told me, oh, we can get you something that'll adapt to hiking and, and rock climbing um, and even scuba diving, I was like, okay, well, great. Um, you know what? If, if I can get back to all of those things, then uh, without having to worry about stepping down wrong and tearing something else in that, in that ankle, great. Um, and, uh, I mean, I didn't take the decision lightly, uh, but the, the, even just that month was, was sort of just feeling out, you know, how are my parents going to react to this or, um, anything else like that? Because, you know, parents, when their youngest daughter, I mean, I joined the military and I did all the crazy stuff anyway, but, um, but yeah. you'd also been in the military. You'd chosen that as a career and hoped for advancement, but you recognized there had been limitations placed on you now with your image, uh, with your injuries, uh, the brain hemorrhaging mm-hmm. that had caused cognitive uh, damage and certainly uh, with the leg. But to the idea that, you know, you made the decision, let's get rid of this leg. It's just a real impediment to me uh, living a more fulfilled life. But were you convinced because of the revolutionary nature of what was availed to you by the uh, the medics, I guess, the uh, the people who had been yeah. doing some surgery that uh, I guess heretofore was really not that uh, nobody had, had done. I guess you were one of the first, were you not? Yes. Uh, so the procedure is called osseointegration, and um, it's still being, it's still mostly on a trial or and very uncommon basis, especially in the United States. Uh, it's more common in Europe and Australia, but here it's brand new, but I had actually met another veteran. Uh, he was British who had had the regular traditional, when you think about it, uh, like the socket, they call it the socket when you slip on the leg, um, the prosthetic onto, onto the residual leg. And he had gone from that, and then he had had the osseointegration where they insert the metal into the bone 
and then you attach the foot or whatever to the bottom. He mm. had gone from one to the other and he was like, this was life changing. And I had not even considered amputation up until that point. And um, that was, if I had gone, if they had said the only thing I could get was that traditional socket, I would have not done it at the time. I would have waited. I know too many other amputees that were just not happy with, um, with the socket. But, I mean, I sleep with my foot on. It's just a part of me. And so uh, the rod that is sort of inserted into the bone, which is perhaps uh, seen as an extension of the bone itself proper, but the nerves had to be reattached to a certain extent as well, did they not? Yes, yes. Uh, they they also did, um, and I would not be able to tell you what it is, uh, the actual procedure name, but uh, a plastic surgeon was actually in there to reattach the nerves to the very bottom of my remaining muscle so that I can actually feel now because I have feedback by the metal inside the bone and then also the nerve reattachment. I can actually tell when I'm walking on carpet or if I'm walking on hardwood. It's, it's crazy what medicine is doing these days. I was going to say, and you're the beneficiary of that after uh, going through this ordeal, being blown up in Iraq with the IED and the, the brain damage and so on and so forth. Again, Elena Duffy, U.S. Army vet, and this piece that was penned in the New York Times talks about uh, years later, amputating my leg set me free. So absolutely no regrets on that front, and uh, you're doing things now as actively perhaps as you did prior to the injury? Oh, yes, I am. I even built a little mini climbing wall in my tiny backyard that I have in New York City. So uh, um, it's not a decision that I took lightly or anyone should. But, you know, sometimes uh, whatever gets you still moving and whatever gets you moving forward is is so critical. So thanks so much. Yeah, you know, this is why I thought the story is fascinating and should be shared. It's about resilience and the indefatigable human spirit. I mean, the things that you went through and then to say this, you know, rather sanguine, yeah, just take my leg off, it'll set me free. And uh, mercifully, too, you've had the benefit of good uh, medical care, I guess, and uh, the doctor, too, uh, on the vanguard of all of these new developments, as you say, like, uh, man, medical science, uh, what advances. Good for you. Congratulations. We appreciate you joining us this afternoon, Elena. Stay well, and uh, good luck going forward. Thank you so much. There's so much to unpack, unravel, as our lives are unraveling uh, right in front of us. It's one of those situations where you just can't get away from this litany of woe. It uh, comes at us fast and furious, as we know, with the numbers every day. Try to digest those and uh, impart some pretty time-worn information here. Wash your hands, uh, social distancing, and yet we've seen spikes, and uh, it doesn't augur well going forward because we might have to tamp things down again. And uh, nobody wants to see that if we can help it. But we'll talk about that. Topics worthy of discussion upcoming shortly, and we'll get around to it when we do. But this uh, cavalcade of woe. You know, some people are uh, maybe not so much inured to it, but almost addicted to it. And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not my phrase, but some people are really hooked on doom scrolling. This is a phrase that was coined by our next guest, Ben Grosser. Ben Grosser is uh, 
Well, he's someone who studies this as a social phenomenon and the effects it has on the human condition, these different social media platforms. And Ben is with us on the line here on the Oakley Show this afternoon. Ben Grosser, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Well, I appreciate you joining us because I think this is something that uh, I've read with fascination that you've got this thing doom surfing or doom scrolling that you've uh, coined. And so tell us in a nutshell what that's all about. Well, let me just um, say that the, the term doom scrolling has been around for a while, and I didn't coin the term, although it's certainly come into popular usage in the last six months or so, as you might imagine. It's, it's a term that refers to how we uh, are finding ourselves regularly, and I would say in some cases involuntarily, scrolling bad news headlines on our phones, um, often for hours at night. I know in my own case, especially in March, but still today, um, you know, I might be staying up later than I intended in bed with my phone, scrolling uh, bad news headlines, and often I might wake up earlier than intended and go right back to the news um, watching. It's just it's something that's uh, hard to get away from. And, of course, you know, if you think about we're in a moment of, of pandemic, and so there's a certain need to pay attention to the news um, to, to, you know, in terms of personal safety, but from my perspective as an artist who studies the cultural effects of software, we're in a moment where that news is presented to us with through uh, interfaces designed to keep us engaged. And so they know what they can give us because they learn from us uh, that will keep us focused on those interfaces, whether it's social media, for example. Um, and so it can be difficult to look away. Well, all right. And so this is interesting because in your own doom scroll here that you've offered up, uh, you've got the list is endless. So you can't really exhaust it because it keeps scrolling to the point that you've just made. Accountability lacking, family struggling, all is lost. <laughs> Epidemic of fear grows. Uh, cases spike. Do not go outside. It almost starts to read like parody. And I'm just wondering if uh, that's what this is about. Is it part social commentary, part media critique? Yeah, so the endless doom scroller um, is an artwork that where I'm what I've done is I've tried to distill this this experience that we're all having down to its most basic components. The idea of just a website that only contains headlines for which we can scroll. And as you, as you explained, it, it, it intentionally gives you an endless list of these headlines. They're generalized versions of, of the headlines we're seeing every day. And, you know, it's part uh, an opportunity for mindfulness for people who have been stuck in this pattern, for them to look at the endless doom scroller and to... Uh, noticed, and, and I've gotten this feedback from people, which is they, they go to it and their reaction is, oh, this, this is what I've been doing all this time. Is I've just been scanning headlines that keep making me feel worse about things. And um, so in that sense, it's certainly commentary, but it's also commentary in the sense that, you know, this isn't just, uh, these, these headlines aren't coming to us from neutral actors. They're coming to us from corporations that um, make profit off of our engagement with these uh, headlines. And so, you know, in the case of Facebook, for example, it's profits are way up in the pandemic. Um, so it, it's also a way of looking at who benefits from this activity, this doom scrolling activity we're engaging in all the time.
Well, from what I've learned, and fairly recently, too, uh, we had a guest on last week. I mean, there are triggers that these companies know uh, will get you. It's almost Pavlovian uh, to check your phone, uh, you know, as soon as you're pinged. There, there's, there's a psychological level of engagement that's almost a subliminal seduction. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, the, the platforms use very sophisticated methods and well-tested techniques to uh, to show us just what we need at precisely the right time to keep us focused, whether it's the notification, whether it's the order of things on our feed, whether it's the uh, visible metrics that show you how many people liked that piece of content as a way of encouraging you to follow it. Um, all kinds of techniques that are used to uh, keep you there. That's that's how these companies uh, are so successful is because we stay there. Do you think it qualifies as an addiction in cases? Well, I try to be careful with the term addiction given its medical um, implications, but certainly I, I refer to it as a compulsion that these interfaces play into our need for self-esteem, our uh, our need to feel valued, whether, um, you know, by others in terms of our own posts, but even just in terms of ourself. And so, we're, you know, part of why we're, we're so focused on them is we're constantly going back to them to see how did people pay attention to us. And that, that need for self-esteem to see how we're being seen out in the world is, is very hard to resist, especially when it's constantly quantified back to us. And so, you know, I have other projects that take on some of these aspects. I have uh, a series of what I call demetricators that are browser plugins that hide the like counts across social media platforms. And I even have another uh, a project called SafeBook that just tries to hide all um, content across the interface. Well, that's the uh, other one that intrigues me because, I mean, what you're, so many people, as you were just saying, validate their sense of self-worth through their Facebook likes, for example. They quantify it that way, <laughs> which is a sad commentary. But uh, SafeBook removes that particular aspect of things. Uh, so, again, uh, is that social commentary you're making now? You're running an experiment here? Or uh, what is the point or purpose behind that, SafeBook? Well, yeah. Certainly. In the terms of SafeBook, which actually hides all content across the Facebook interface, text, video, image, sound, um, it's, it's, a, it's a piece that's really speaking to the role of Facebook in society at this very moment, that you know, we're about to have another presidential election in the United States. We know plenty about um, people uh, using a Russian government, for example, using the interface to uh, work against, to target specific people in the United States, to give them messages that will encourage them to vote in certain ways. We know that, um, that uh, you know, for example, with the, uh, the, the racial violence, the, the anti-black violence going on in the United States, the anti-Black Lives Matter um, actions that, that Facebook groups are being used to coordinate some of this activity. And so um, SafeBook is a way of talking about, well, what would it take to make, safe, to make Facebook safe in, in, the, in the middle of this moment? And, and certainly that works answer is, well, maybe just hide everything. So as an artist then, Ben, the idea, I mean, art is to, to provoke. And so if you provoked, say, uh, the thought process here, or the mind uh, to reexamine 
some of these precepts that are now sort of taken for granted. They're part of, uh, you know, the wallpaper, uh, the different social media platforms. They alter human behavior. But you think you can do something by way uh, like these types of, uh, well, let's call them pieces of art that maybe uh, people would take as their cues and, and then start to recognize and de deconstruct what's happening to them or their behavior has been shaped. I mean, or they're, they've been manipulated. Is that maybe part of the... Uh, the whole uh, agenda here that you've got? It's absolutely a significant component of what I'm trying to do here. I'm what my interest is in creating software that gets in between the user and these systems we use every day as a way of showing um, all of us how we're being affected by these platforms that you know, the presence of, of metrics that count the likes influence us that um, the, the, the feed algorithms that show us the next bad news headline um, keeps us there and knows how to keep us there. And, and to provoke us to think, well, do we, you know, who's benefiting from, from this exchange? Is it, is it us as the user or is it more for the benefit of the social media companies themselves? Well, it's certainly uh, a wake up call, I guess, for people to examine their social media habits more critically. I appreciate your joining us this afternoon. I mean, these are the kinds of stories that uh, need to be emphasized because I think uh, a lot of people have been sort of taken down this rabbit hole and uh, hopefully not past the point of no return. Uh, ben, appreciate it uh, from the University of Illinois. You stay well. Thank you. Nice chatting with you. My pleasure. Ben Grosser, again, artist and professor at the University of Illinois. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 14th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.